This episode is sponsored by SEO Monitor. Forecasting is one of the thorny topics in the SEO industry, especially when you do it manually in a rush to create a proposal for a prospect you don't know well. SEO Monitor has created a tool to help you easily eliminate error-prone spreadsheets, unreliable data, and hard-to-maintain formulas. You just need to choose your keywords and select your ranking goals to get estimated sessions and conversions, all through a completely transparent algorithm which uses a precise CTR curve, seasonality, and device segmentation. Sign up now and get a three-month free trial for simplified and accurate SEO forecasts at seomonitor.com forward slash podcast. Once again, that's seomonitor.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Contrarian Marketing Podcast, where we give you ideas you might not be thinking about. Today, Eli and I talk about scoring marketing budgets. So we're going to cover everything from what makes a good budget, how should you think about that in the future, and how can you get out of budget squeezes that are happening now all over the place. Before we jump in, Eli, would you pay $12 a month to get a verified Facebook account? No, and I got to say, this seems almost desperate by Facebook. You know, Whenever we release this, there may or may not have been additional meta or Facebook layoffs. It seems like social media is going through growing pains. You've got Twitter. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter a little bit, not as much as before, but there say there are all these advertisers that have just completely suspended their budgets. They don't want to be paying directly to Musk or they don't know what's going on on Twitter. So they're holding off. Definitely some sort of usage is down. It depends who you listen to, whether there's actual usage down. And then you have Meta, which I saw, you know, great conversations this week about this verification. And many people are like, so what? I don't even use the platform. But I think there is value to the platform. I don't know. Kevin, have you ever bought anything off of Facebook Marketplace or sold anything on Facebook Marketplace? I have. It's actually really good. I, I think there's nothing like that. Like it's better than Craigslist, which is completely anonymous, better than Nextdoor because you have greater reach. But it's, it seems like a, a really good solution. So maybe verification is all about that. But I don't know how many people need verification. You know, there's a number of people that probably still get violence done to them and robbed off of Facebook Marketplace. And even with verification, criminals are going to be criminals. <laughs> the police will know where to go, but it doesn't really change much. So I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of value in it or this is just a desperation move. But I, I wouldn't pay. Would you pay? I would not pay unless there was a really strong reason to do that but just to be verified i don't see any point in that i stopped using facebook a long time ago and the only reason i still have an account is because there's one group <laughs> that doesn't that's still on facebook that i really want to be part of that is important to me but there's literally no other reason whenever i open facebook i get completely overwhelmed in, in seconds and to be fair i am on instagram so and I, I use whatsapp so i'm in the broader facebook or meta ecosystem but the facebook blue app is terrible however you know, if there was a better way for me to to get reached by being verified, I would reconsider it. And that's one of the problems that I also had with the Twitter verification. And I mean, Twitter, lots of problems, but there was no essential benefit. Matter of fact, I canceled my verification and uh, I still somehow have all the premium features in my account, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous. That's because they laid off for the person or the person quit that's supposed to take it away. So it's just there. 
dude, laid him off or or, or quit Slack or, or I don't know what's even going on at this company. There needs to be a real benefit. I generally don't mind paying for social media. I actually like the idea much more than seeing ads for me personally. But the benefits need to be clear and they need to be tangible and they need to make sense economically. So if I know that I get you know a certain amount of new newsletter subscribers or sponsors to this podcast through Twitter, I would happily pay. I would happily even pay $20 or whatever. But the benefits are not very clear because a lot of these social networks are still caught up in their advertising business. And that's a big problem. There's another headline that came out this week that stands in stark contrast to the Facebook blue verification, which is that there's a new study that came out that shows that Social media is causative in teen depression, especially among teen girls. So for a long time, there were some studies showing that there was a strong correlation between depression and social media usage for teen girls. Now there's a new study saying that's the cause of it. You, you said we're kind of, you know, the, like social media is in decline. I think it's the end of an era where we realize the downsides of, of the current form of social media. And I'm super excited about what that new next era could look like potentially. Oh, I know. I think we're going down this terrible rabbit hole. I saw that study also, and, and social media is very broad in general. So WhatsApp is social media. I mean, there's statuses on WhatsApp. There's groups on WhatsApp. There's you know one-to-one -one messages where people bully. So I, I think that Facebook is no longer the primary social media. I forget how many years ago it was that Facebook got caught for admitting that they did psychological studies on their users. And we've talked about this a little bit, but like, at least when Facebook did those kinds of things and they discovered that they caused problems, they owned up to it, you know, got a lot of flack for it, but owned up to it. TikTok probably does these kinds of things. And then they're like, that was a successful growth experiment. Let's do more of that. Let's get people more addicted to it. So I think that the, this is an ever-changing landscape. And if there's one message you can take from this, which is nothing is permanent. Imagine five years ago, you said you're going to start a new Facebook, people would laugh at you. And now there's clearly a, a hole there. And we've had an episode where we talked about LinkedIn becoming like Facebook. I don't think it's purely like Facebook, but it's definitely taking up some of those eyeballs, some of that time that people spent on Facebook. So it's an interesting time. There's definitely room for change. There's room for, for new social media. It's interesting to actually see them all competing with each other because you know Facebook's you're driving after Twitter and Twitter's driving after, I don't know what they're driving after. LinkedIn's going for the same market. Certainly interesting times. And, you know, obviously has that a lot to do with the economy. So why don't we dive into our, our main topic, getting budgets. It's an interesting time to be talking about getting budgets because we're launching this episode in you know, end of Q1. No one really asks for budgets then to Q1. But because of the economy, we're constantly asking, like I find with, you know, my own consulting that things are like, you know, fits and spurts. There's like a desire to do it, but then there's no budget. And then there's a budget ask later. So let's talk about some of our best tips for, for getting that budget. You spent a number of time that is an executive in companies, and as did I, getting budgets and managing budgets. So, what what are some of your favorite things and best tips for how to get budgets, and what our listeners can learn? Yeah, it's it's, it's funny you say that because our first episode was about how twenty twenty three is hard to plan, and you maybe shouldn't plan at all. And exactly that is happening right now. Budgets are constantly revised and cut. I had the opportunity to manage multi-million dollar budgets in, in my corporate career, and it's a tricky one. So generally, when it comes to, to getting budgets, there are three core philosophies that companies follow. There's a traditional way where you get a budget and you get the same budget every year. So you kind of have to justify your budget by spending it. That's, that opened the doors to a whole ecosystem of agencies and freelancers and other people 
who just live off of getting the famous Q4 budget, which is some marketing executive has to quickly spend a couple thousand dollars uh, to get that same budget next year. And they, they spend it for some nonsense sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's, it's also sensical. There's a zero-based budget approach where every year you start from scratch, basically from zero, and you have to justify your budget, which I like a bit more. And then there's the percentile approach where you get a percentage of the annual revenue for marketing. So if your annual revenue is, is, is a million dollars, then you would get, say you get 20%, that's $200,000. And then there's your budget, make do as good as possible with it. And I actually think that there's a much, much smarter way that is at the same time much less used, which is the reverse engineered budget. So you basically set a target. You say, listen, this is where we want to be at a com- as a company from a revenue perspective at the end of the year. And then that target trickles down through all the other departments, sales, marketing, product, et cetera. That decides how much budget you need to get to a certain target. So if you know that a certain spend, for example, on Google Ads gets you a certain ROI, you should be able to scale that up. Maybe you sprinkle in a couple of bigger bets to see if you can overshoot that that company target. And that is a much clearer path to success in my mind than than other ways. What have you learned, Eli? Because you manage large budgets too. Yeah, so I, I hate this concept of zero base and you know any sort of percentile because I, I it, think it, it's not fluid. It doesn't really take into account the way things should be. You know, I've been stuck into the same thing and the same rules, but it doesn't mean you have to keep the rules. So my best thing for really getting budgets is understanding who I'm pitching. Ultimately, when you pitch for budget, you're pitching to a CFO. You're pitching to the person that's or someone in the CFO's team that's going to allow you to get that. But I find that when you can ally yourself with other people getting budgets, you can float in on, amongst that. So, so it starts with your boss. We're, we're talking to marketers, so maybe the boss is CMO, maybe the boss is someone else in the C-suite, but there's someone there. You need to pitch up. So I find that understanding what that person is looking for, you can really ally yourself with them and be, you know, get under that umbrella. So one thing that I found, there's some people that they, they get a lot of you know, whatever it is, makes them feel good because they have a big budget. They get to say things like, and I've met people who say, oh, I manage hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm like, you don't even know where that money goes, but it made them feel good to say it. And they, you know, maybe you go to a bar and tell people hundreds of millions of dollars. So when you come to someone, they may just want you to put a big number out there. So when you give them a big number, it's going to get haircut, but maybe the big number gets haircut by 50%, but still leaves them with a big number. That's all they're really looking for. Other times you're looking for someone who's very, very specific on ROI. So then you want to go to them and really show here's the ROI I'm going to get from this. So that's my favorite thing is really to do the social and emotional part of this is understand who you're pitching and how to pitch them. And that helps you better to extract it. Have have you ever found that to be the case or are you just kind of the person that just, you know, here's a spreadsheet and here's what I need? I think you're absolutely on your mind there. It's super important to to know who makes the decision and how they make decisions. There are some people, I, especially in the growth world, who are very data-centric. They want the spreadsheet. They want the math. They want the logic. And then there are other people who want to get excited about a story, more like the brand type of CMOs. And they're, you're not going to win them over with a big spreadsheet. You're going to win them over with an exciting story and some big bets and some big leaps. Knowing your target audience, I think, is absolutely critical. And, and then you know, mentioned zero base. I think zero base is, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a prison for budgets. You're trying to get somewhere and starting from the bottom. What I like to do is to avoid the zero base is to explain that you're already spending money. 
there is budget allocated when talking to marketers, there's budget allocated to marketers. So if it's not given to you, it has to be given to someone else or there's a reason this money's out there. So the way I do that is I show some other sort of number and then I compare to it. So if I'm pitching for SEO budget, I'll show here's your our SEM, here's search engine marketing budget, here's how much we're spending. So if we don't do SEO, this is how much we have to continue to spend. And typically I like to find a number that's much, much bigger. So if I'm asking for a million dollars, I might, for SEO, for example, I might say, hey, we already spend a million dollars per month on, on paid marketing. So that gets us to $12 million. I'm only asking for one twelfth of that. It makes my number all of a sudden look smaller. But if you start zero base and you say, well, you're giving me $0 and I'm asking for a million dollars, that's a good way to get kicked out of the conference room. So I, I find that, again, when you find some sort of higher number, when it comes to, let's say if I'm pitching for brand. I might point out that we're already doing a lot of brand things. We're already hiring a lot of people that are supposed to be representing the brand. We're already spending a lot of money on swag, which is brand. Then you say, well, we're spending all this money. We can do it so much more effectively on this brand campaign. But again, even if you're doing a zero base, I just like to say, we're already sort of spending the money anyways. So you want to give me money as if I, you give me an option of getting $0. I'm pointing out that someone else is already getting the money. So let's start down from the top. You ever tried something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I like how you talk about different channels to get budgeted for because there is a big difference. For paid channels, it's much easier to scale paid up or down. Typically, not infinitively, but typically, the more dollars you put in, the more you get out. Of course, you know, there's efficiency, there's ROAS, there's, there's a lot of variables to consider, but generally, that's how it works. For the other channels like brand and SEO that don't work necessarily like that. If you are a marketplace or an aggregator company, it's a little different. You can probably quantify the impact of SEO, but that's not always possible. And that's much, much harder to get budget for, right? If I say, look, I know that if you give me a million dollars, I can get a five back from pay channels. That's a pretty secure win. But saying I need a million dollars for brand or for SEO, much, much harder. So how have you solved that in the past? Like when it's so hard to quantify and, and you know, like do you... You just kind of put SEO into into a different channel and you say it's not performance, it's something else, or do you try to come up with a math or a formula? Yeah, I love that. And then we should probably do a whole episode on forecasting because you had a great LinkedIn post on it, which got a lot of attention. So I think a big problem that a lot of marketers have is they don't forecast correctly. So it's okay not to do it correctly, like to get the right number in a forecast. I mean, like look at the weather, like how often is the meteorologist exactly right? But they're generally right. They're directionally right. So if the meteorologist says it's going to rain this week, it probably will rain this week. But the re- meteorologist rarely will say it will rain 100% on your house at 2.15 p.m. They're not doing that. So you don't need to get buttonholed into like that exact sort of forecast. You just need to get directionally right saying, if I spend a million dollars on this you know, paid marketing campaign, I expect to get this amount of impressions based on this calculation. I expect to get this amount of clicks. And if everything works out well, this is going to be the profitability from that. Again, directional. I don't know that a lot of people are going to come back. A lot of executives are going to come back and say, well, you got less impressions than you said, and the conversion rate was higher. You know, there's all those variables in there, but directionally go and that you know, have something. Where marketers, I think, mess up is they say things like, well, I don't know, it's too hard to forecast. There's too many variables. And that's that's the wrong thing. Like again. Imagine the meteorologist would go on TV and say, like, it's nature. I don't really know if it's going to snow or not. Like, it could be cold, could be warm. You know, I don't know what you pay me for. Like, you can't do that. And I think marketers try to do that. And a, a good parallel to think about is, is COVID. You saw how the whole world was panicked because we got no definitive answers. You know, they went on TV and said, 
is it going to kill you? And they're like, I don't know, it might. And then they said, is the vaccine going to work? It's definitely going to work. But then you had all these questions and they created all these doubts. Like it was filled with conspiracy theories. And I feel like even if they were wrong, they were just more truthful saying like, you definitely can touch your Amazon boxes. You don't need to leave them outside and spray Clorox on them, but you should wear a mask because we know for sure that works. Use the same thing for marketing is if you come in and say, well, I know I need a, you know, an influencer campaign. I think it will get reach. Uh, it probably will work. Suddenly, the person that comes in the room and says, oh, I definitely need money for this. I know exactly how it's going to work. Even if they're just full of BS, doesn't matter. They're really being clear about what they're asking for. So I think the best thing marketers could do is have a good forecast that's logical and doesn't have holes. Absolutely. And we know this from the product world, right? In the product world, it's fine to say, look, we don't know how to move the needle yet. So we're going to set a target to figure it out. And I think the exact same principle can apply to marketing budgets. I think it's totally fine to say, look, I'm not going to ask for the same investment in SEO as for paid, but I'm going to ask for a fraction so that we can go out and learn how to move the needle and by how much. And then we're going to scale it up. And then maybe next year or later in the year, we're going to ask for more budget if we hit gold, right? If we are, if we are successful. So another thing, you know, you mentioned like you, want, you don't want to have, like leave too much room for interpretation. And I think one way to circumvent that is to just simply say, this is learning budget. We need to invest to find new levers, to find new things that work. And we're going to use it for that. And we're going to come back with a clear idea and, and some good lessons. So that is a tool that, that only few marketers really make use of. And I think it's because they don't have a lot of experience in product where that's totally fine, right? It's like explorative. It's we need to learn. We need to understand. Once we understood, then we can scale and we can get a better answer. Yeah. And the last thing I just want to say, and then we should talk about what do you do when you know budgets get cut, is I always find that I ask for a budget number that's a little bit of extreme. And that allows me to kind of re you know retreat into another less extreme one. And maybe I'll even have a different model. So that way, whoever I'm asking can feel like, well, they didn't give me everything I asked for. I compromised and I took something else. So if you come and say, this is the budget. If you don't give me this budget, I don't have anything to do you put yourself in a tight position. You know, we're not in a time where everyone's going to get everything we're asking for. Everyone's asking and everyone's going to get somewhat haircut. So I find that I can say like, well, this is what I really need. I need a million dollars. And then they can say, you can't have a million dollars. Then I can have a sensible say, a sensible way of really pitching for $800,000 and not like, well, I guess I'll just cut it off by 20%. Or I even have a more sensible way of saying, here's what I would do with $500,000. And you're more likely to get something when you just come for one ask and then your one ask gets shut down, I think you feel like you're coming back from a position of defeat. So that would be another thing that I always try to do and always recommend that people do when I'm coaching them is have multiple ways of asking. So that way you could earn political capital by saying, you know what, that might be a little extreme. Here's my plan B or here's my plan C. But let's let's dive into, I don't know if you have anything else to on that, but let's dive into what are your best tips for like when you have to cut budgets? Yeah, cutting budget is a really tricky one. And there's often a feeling of, I don't have any anything else to cut. However, what also happens over time is that marketing departments can get a bit bloated, roadmaps can get, can get a bit bloated. So ideally, you trim it back down to what you know works, or you better said, you differentiate between what you know works, what already delivers results, and what's a big bet. And a thing to cut doesn't always have to be a big bet, but it's, it's probably the better idea. 
However, you can also cut some things that already work, and then you can play that back to the person cutting your budget, right? So if you talk to finance or the CEO and they say, look, a million dollars is now going to be 800,000, you can say, okay, that's fine, but we also need to lower our targets. And I think that's often the biggest problem is that, you know, CMOs or marketing executives are being held to doing more with less, but it's not always it's not always realistic and feasible. So some compromises have to be made. And by lowering targets, you also alleviate some pressure on the marketing team and uh, on the team as a whole. So when I look at what to cut, I distinguish between big bets and what's working. And when I cut what's working, I go back and I renegotiate my goals. And I think that's absolutely fair to do. How do you uh, handle that, Eli? Yeah, that's a tough one. I find that sometimes they don't want to renegotiate. They want to say, okay, I'm, you need to do the exact same amount with just less money. But again, it really comes down to knowing what you're asking for and, and knowing your numbers. So you can say, well, you cut me down by 80%. This is the forecast. This is the way, again, it doesn't have to be so accurate, but this is what I was thinking. So therefore, by cutting me down 80%, you've actually you know, lowered my the outcomes by seven by you know 70% or something like that. So really be specific and show how you got to something instead of saying, well, I'll just take that haircut, whatever haircut you gave me, I'm just cutting that off. But can be logical and and go through that and hopefully whoever you're pitching to, whoever's making those goals on you will understand that things do need to change. Yes, yes. Something has to give. And we've been we've been speaking a little bit about layoffs in, in the past, past couple of podcasts. And when we talk about, you know, budget cuts, of course, layoffs is kind of the next logical topic. So sometimes it can just be marketing spend that you cut, where you say, look, our paid spend is now cut by half to save budget. And other times it's actually reducing your headcount. And that is another one of these really, really difficult situations. But ways to alleviate that is to basically exchange a full-time employee with contractors, right? Where you say, look, we have this, for example, creative designer and we're going to let them go and instead spend half of their salary on a contractor who does you know, what we really need. So there's that flexibility as well. And a lot of companies are making use of that, obviously. Meta just announced a second round of layoffs. There are more tech workers who are looking for jobs. So Eli, I know you're, you're helping a lot of people find new jobs. Tell me a bit about that. So I, I love helping people find new jobs because it, it gives like this sense of contributing to the world that you know, here's people that found something and now they can be happier. I've had like different recruiters offer to pay me for access to my network. I've had companies ask me like, you know, when I've sent them candidates, they, they've uh, asked me what my rate is. And I'm like, I don't have a rate. I'm just, you know, you're hiring and I know someone that needs a job and it would just make me very happy if that person got a job. So I love doing it. It actually started as my pandemic way of networking. We lost conferences. We lost, you know, reasons to go out and meet people. So I, I posted on LinkedIn, I'm looking to help people get jobs. And then I got a bunch of messages and I met people I didn't know. So I was like, well, let's, let's do more of that. This is a good way to meet people and of course be helpful. So I've been doing it for the last, you know, I don't know, three years since the pandemic started. And it's really morphed into a lot of introductions, a lot of people hired for the pandemic where people get laid off through the pandemic, there were people getting hired and just needed new jobs. And now we're again, seeing people get laid off. It's, it's a weird time in the economy because the unemployment rate is still fairly low, but obviously the media is dominated by layoffs. And the, you know, some have said it's a tech world layoff. It's not everywhere else. But that doesn't really matter to me. I know most people in the tech world and people I know are impacted this. So I, I want to try to help. So the thing that I do is two things. One is I offer to connect anybody to anybody possible. So that offer is always out there. And the second thing is 
I've specifically tagged a few of my friends who I know like need jobs and you know just need more attention, maybe who aren't able to get it themselves. So if there's anybody out there that I could do it for, like I can't do it for everyone, you know, maybe one a week or something, it has gotten them hired. So happy to do that. And again, I never get paid for it. I don't want to get paid for it. My payment is seeing the satisfaction. And what do you what are some things that you do, Kevin, to help people find new roles? Yeah. It's predominantly working. So sometimes I connect people, of course, to other employers, but a lot of work has gone into helping people with the resumes. One example is on Wednesday, I actually spent 30 minutes with this guy who lives in the same apartment building. <laughs> he saw me in the gym and he recognized me from my blog and, and he came over hey, and was Kevin, like, hey, you're you famous. Know, Can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> famous for like hundred people maybe but yeah it kind of was like that he's a he works in in marketing automation and you know is having a hard time finding a new job his current contract runs out and so we we spent some time going over his resume and there are some critical errors that most people make with their resumes this might be a good you know future episode where we speak just about resumes and if you're listening to this give us some signal if that's interesting to you but one of the critical errors is that a lot of people talk about what they've done, but not what they've accomplished in previous roles. And that's the first thing that I look at when I hire or used to hire people. So resume polishing and, and LinkedIn profile polishing and those kind of things can go to great lengths when you're looking for a new job. And that's what I what I help most people with. That's that's great. Yeah, we should totally do an episode on, on resumes. I think that you know, people don't realize how important it is that even if they are the right fit, to share with the potential hiring manager that they are the right fit because it's it's not up to them to look at your resume and say, I see a diamond in the rough. I see someone that's not explaining that they could do this role, but to really for you to say, this is your problem. Here's your job description. Here's exactly how I'm going to do it. So that's great. We should totally do that. Let's let's wrap up and you know share one thing that we can, we were going to be doing to help people. I started working with this site palette where they have these job boards and I, I was trying to help people get connected to jobs. It was a bit too much. I had a Google forum and then I hired someone to help me manage a Google forum. And then she ran away with one week salary. Totally would have kept paying her forever, but then she ghosted me. So I'm using this palette. So we'll drop the link in the show notes where you could, I don't even know, it's called apply, but essentially just put your profile on there and then we'll share it with any hiring manager. So if there's any hiring managers out there, add yourself to the palette and we'll connect one-to-one and just you know make this connection. So Contrary Marketing Podcast now has a, a job board, no payments for it, at least for any time in the near future, and happy to help people get jobs and do our part. Love it, man. Love it. And I'm, I'm happy to offer adding a, a job section to my growth mail newsletter with 8,500 subscribers now. But I would love to hear some signal from, from listeners. Is that something you want? I don't want to, not, not spam, but add any content that people are not interested in. So if that's something that would truly help, happy to bring some of the jobs that I know are open before they're on public job boards to the newsletter. But give me some signal if that's actually interesting to you. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point. So if there's anything we can share, like in a future episode, we definitely will do the resumes. Let us know. And that's a wrap, Eli. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thanks, Kevin. And now it's your turn. Head over to contrarianmarketingpodcast.com and subscribe to the free weekly newsletter to get a summary of today's episode, key takeaways, and community content. And while you're there, go to today's episode and leave your opinion in the comments. We'll feature the best thoughts in the newsletter and on the podcast. Also, if you like today's episode, please feel free to leave five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and here next week.